And we're back with another episode of Redesigning School in our season three. Uh, I am Terry DeVoe, Director of Special Projects here at Hawken. And I'm Garrett Libby, Associate Head of School for Program here at Hawken. Yeah, Garrett, you're really busy. How has your October been? What has been going on? Seems pretty like light fair here in Cleveland oh, during yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, last time we talked, we talked COVID, COVID all the time and what it meant to reopen school. And, um, you know, that doesn't go away. Um, <laughs> one, one, pod, one podcast episode doesn't sew that up. Yeah, it's still here. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think we're just learning each month what the new normal is and how to navigate it. And I think, um, you know, each point in the year brings new things. So now we're we've got the layer of people being worried about COVID and thinking about the fact that we have an election in less than a week. Yes. So um, that's sort of, you know, I've been introducing my oldest to uh, the election process this month, um, letting her watch debates with me and things. And um, it's a lot, it's a lot to, uh, it's a lot to navigate on your own. And I think it's even more so um, with children. So um, I'm eager and excited to hear from our, our guest today. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's the transition, right? November is going to bring a whole other set of interesting challenges, um, to say the least. So just so listeners know, we are recording this on Wednesday, October 28th, which is uh, a mere six days before the election. Um, and uh, this is not a political podcast, so we will not be prognosticating or sharing our political perspectives. Uh, but we did think it would be a good time to explore a little bit about how schools can uh, do their part to help create civil civic citizens. Um, so there's some important alliteration there, uh, focusing on the civil and the civic, uh, how we're going to help school, uh, families do that or students do that. So, and who better to help us than uh, Laura Tavares, uh, who is the program director uh, of, for organizational learning and thought leadership at Facing History and Ourselves. So welcome, Laura. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So, Laura, we are so excited to have you here. Um, I'll just qualify by saying I'm a Facing History super fan. So that's part of my excitement. Um, but, you know, we know that you lead strategic partnerships, you design learning experiences for teachers, and you also are an integral part of creating innovative classroom resources for everybody. Um, but there's a lot embedded in there uh, and a lot there. Uh, could you talk a little bit about more about the work you do there, but also a little bit about Facing History and ourselves. Sure, Garrett, thanks. Facing History has been around for almost 45 years now, um, and we've grown to be a global education nonprofit um, working all over the world. And our mission is to use lessons of history to challenge teachers and students to stand up to bigotry and hate. And we've developed a, an approach to humanities education that really helps young people become more equitable, engaged, and responsible decision makers who we believe will then build more just and inclusive societies. So what that means at the day-to-day -day level is we create classroom resources for the teaching of history and literature and advisory and other, other topic areas. We provide professional learning for teachers, seminars, webinars, <laughs> everything online like you've been doing. And then we also do a lot of follow-up support, both for individual teachers and for whole school communities. So um, like many of the program staff at Facing History, I was a teacher 
lecture um, before coming to work at Facing History about 15 years ago. And I taught Facing History to eighth graders and was really inspired by the way that it helped me to connect a larger sense of purpose that I had in education with actual daily classroom practices that were really effective and engaging for my students. So um, I've been serving in various roles on Facing History's program staff for quite a while now. Um, but right now, I'm really focused, especially this year, on helping the organization be responsive to the context that we find ourselves in, whether that means thinking about the challenges of um, what it means to do student-centered teaching and learning in a remote setting and responding to those dimensions of this pandemic moment, but also um, trying to help educators and schools address current events, um, both you know, the immediate things that are on the front pages of the newspaper, but also um, all the underlying questions about equity and justice um, that are being raised and thinking about the part that schools can play in um, addressing those issues. Well, yeah, so that's, uh, it, there's this, the moment is so tense and rich and there's so many different threads going on here. And obviously there are a lot of uh, places people can go to hear about politics and democracy, but I think it'd be helpful to hear your perspective about the stakes for students, you know, why is it important for schools to devote time and thought to civil civic engagement? Yeah. Well, certainly in the United States, um, educating for democracy has always been part of the purpose of public schools and the, the founding of public schools. Um, when I think about today's students, what immediately comes to mind is just this question of what does it mean to be growing up and coming of age and coming to consciousness at a time of so much uh, uncertainty and upheaval and um, at a time when, when uh, our American democracy does seem increasingly fragile and sometimes perhaps a bit um, less than optimally functional. <laughs> so there were some recent studies from, from um, Yasha Munk and Stefan Fowe that you may have seen who were looking at um, the civic attitudes of um, young people and you know young adults up into their, their early 30s. And they found that um, young adults in the United States were less likely to say that it was essential to live in a democracy than older people were. I so that. I think you know we see some... Um, some cynicism, maybe some hopelessness about the system. And I think that schools just have a, an incredibly important role to play in combating that um, in helping students, you know, look at our history and think about um, the way that even people who were the most uh, disadvantaged in American democracy still kept faith with democracy and, and used it to make change for the better. Um, and then to help students really learn those knowledge and skills and dispositions that they need to be effective change makers themselves. Yeah, thank you, Laura. Um, I, I think you captured a lot of what I feel like both as a parent and an educator, I've been feeling that there is this complexity um, out there. And how do you sort of tease that apart and um, sort of pull off that layer that maybe that top layer of cynicism to help them really understand where the conflict is and be comfortable in that conflict. And I know when I think back, I was also an eighth grade humanities teacher um, before stepping into my role. Um, and when I think back uh, to middle schoolers, that's often how they feel, right? There is sort of a pushing and testing boundaries and leaning into that cynicism a little bit of what, what they might be hearing. And I think back to activities that I use to try and tease that apart a bit, you know, protocols that allow and create space for kids to play with the ideas that they have without being shut down um, 
by kids who have really big opinions and ideas they want to get out there. And I'm just curious because I do think it's a really complex time. What are some ways that you think about that or facing history tries to support faculty in terms of really trying to give kids that opportunity to be agents and have agency and ownership over their thoughts, um, but also sort of civilly and critically engage with classmates that might have different perspectives from them? I think I would, as you say, it's so that work is so complex and it, it goes on forever. It's not just the work of, you know, one lesson or one unit, but there are a couple of specific practices um, and learning opportunities that come to mind. One of them, and, and I think we can think of them as sort of in the domains of reflection and action. And so, you know, I would begin with self-reflection and really asking students to think about, um, you know, who am I? <laughs> How am I making sense of this world? Sort of what is my stake in this moment? We recently published a, I, what I think is a really lovely activity for teachers to do with their students um, called the Civic Self-Portrait that invites students to actually create a visual self-portrait that can be beautiful, it can be a simple stick figure, but then to annotate it with, you know, around their head, what, what am I in their eyes? What am I seeing in the, in the world around me? What am I noticing? Um, around the heart, what do I feel about what, am I, what I'm seeing? Around their, their mind, what do I think about it? What am I saying um, or with their mouth? What am I doing with my hands? What am I worried about with my stomach? This is a very concrete, I would say, especially middle school friendly kind of activity that really invites students um, through this simple entry point to think about what am I seeing, hearing, feeling? How am I making sense of this world? And then ha that, how, how does that shape my own sense of um, where I might find the issues or the concerns that I want to lean into? So I think that kind of reflection is a really essential component. Um, and then when we think about action, you know, sometimes that we build that sense of agency through um, project-based learning and civic action projects. And I know that the mastery school is a master of that, that sort of approach. Um, but I also think that civic action takes the form of learning how to have conversations across difference, learning how to deliberate. Um, one political scientist fam famously said, freedom is an endless meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Which, when I think about my own like local civic involvement, that's definitely true. And so it's interesting to think about how do we build some of those skills and dispositions to sort of be in conversation with each other. Um, and we certainly have a lot of resources around that, including um, a guide that we recently revised called Fostering Civil Discourse which has strategies for sort of growing that muscle um, both in in-person classrooms and then also adapted for remote settings. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that. It's really an incredible guide, right? It's very detailed, very accessible. Um, but in that guide, which we'll put in the show notes in case people are interested, and I hope they do uh, download it. Um, there's a quote in there that I actually want to read to you uh, and get your reaction to. Um, so in it, uh, Facing History uh, made it, and they said, conversations that touch on emotional topics or spark, spark controversy between students are often labeled as difficult. But uh, Darissa Grant asks in her Inside Higher Education article, what if these conversations are not actually difficult, but simply unpracticed? And I thought that was really interesting as a frame. Like, so what if that, what happens if we change the frame of difficulty to unpracticed? What does that do to the classroom? Mm. Well, I think I love that insight from Darissa Grant um, or that subtle reframe, that not so subtle <laughs> reframe. Yeah, because, really consequential. You know, yeah. And if, you know, if you say to a teacher, I want to have a difficult conversation with your students, 
<laughs> What's the answer going to be? No. No, right? <laughs> um, it feels dangerous. It feels like things might blow up. It feels like you might get phone calls from parents or a visit from your administrator. Um, and we know that there are certain topics um, talking about issues of race and justice, talking about um, political decision-making, talking about um, issues of identity and public policy like immigration. Those are conversations that challenge us. They also happen to be conversations that are really at the heart of our common life together as a country and as citizens. Um, and so I think when we think about those conversations, not as difficult, but as unpracticed, it helps us, first of all, take a step back from that fear and help us think about not this, um, this scary experience, but a learning process, right? When something is unpracticed, what can you do? You can practice. And so I think it really puts the focus on how do we approach engaging in dialogue about potentially divisive topics um, with the support of skills and frameworks and structures um, in the classroom that allow us to, um, to become more competent um, and to, to invite those conversations as learning opportunities and not as minefields. And it, it just strikes me also that this is democracy. The democracy is about sharing ideas. It's the it's the it's the marketplace of ideas, and it's you fervently articulate them, you explore them, you test them, and the best ones. That's how we got here, theoretically. Mm -hmm. And now, what a shame to feel like to engage in those conversations is is, is a difficulty to be avoided, as opposed to. So, but I, it's understandable because of where we are. So, do you feel like if practiced? people can get better at this? Yes, I do. Um, you know, I, I, I recently heard the uh, political philosopher Danielle Allen speak. She's so wonderful on all of these issues. And one of the things she said was that um, all of the disagreement in our culture right now is actually a sign of success because mm -hmm. our culture has become much more inclusive, but inclusion is noisy and there's a lot more voice happening. <laughs> and so I think we are in a, I think, as a, as a culture, perhaps, um, we could see this as a, a learning moment when we could learn to get better at having these conversations. There are many efforts, uh, not just in the classroom, but aimed at adult communities, including one called the Better Arguments Project in which Facing History is a partner, um, is a partner in designed to really build these capacities across our entire population. I don't think it will ever be um, easy to talk about these issues, which, you know, really target some of our um, most deeply held values and sometimes our own sense of personal, you know, worth and vulnerability. It won't ever be easy, but I think um, we can approach those conversations with more purpose and confidence. Thank you. That was um, heartening in some way, yeah. <laughs> um, as difficult as it sounds. Um, and I'm just thinking, you know, sitting here now, we've got an election in less than a week, and we don't really know right now what's going to happen. So, and our listeners may not even know, you know, there may not be such thing as an election night decision. So when this launches next Wednesday, we may not know the outcome. So I just think about um, myself, other parents sitting, you know, watching this unfold as their children may be upstairs asleep or maybe sitting next to them watching it. What advice would you give them about how to help their children respond 
not just to this election, because that is a piece of it, but really to where our democracy is right now and the state of our democracy. That's a question I've been thinking a lot about. Um, as we were discussing before, I have two daughters who are 11 and 13, and the older one especially is just sort of poking her head up and really coming to consciousness about um, this country and her world and, and having a lot of questions. I think as always, you know, both in parenting and in teaching, when possible, listening more than you talk. <laughs> It's like a fundamental good practice um, and, and finding ways to ask, you know, what are you, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What's the conversation at school? You know, we actually started during the pandemic getting a physical copy of the newspaper to have it sitting around to be able to actually point to it and look at the headlines. You know, it's not really, the way we often consume news now, at least me on my phone, it's not a sort of... Um, a public artifact around the house in the way that a newspaper is. And so I found as a parent, it's been really helpful to just be sitting there paging through modeling engagement, but also being able to say, oh, look at this photo, look at this headline, what's going on here? So I think that piece is part of it. But, you know, I'm also guided as a parent by some of Facing History's approach, which is that, you know, we, we don't just deal with the head, we also deal with the heart and the conscience. And so making space for, um, feelings, not just saying, you know, what did this candidate say? Or what, you know, what's the state of the electoral college right now? But, um, but, you know, what's on your heart around this? And then also that that piece about conscience and ethics is asking questions like, well, who else, who, how might others be feeling? Um, who might be feeling vulnerable as a result of what happens, what's happening right now? What might um, good citizenship look like um, in this moment? And I think, you know, as a parent, uh, my kids are obviously, they're too young to vote, but they're definitely old enough to care. They're really starting to care. And so I think um, having a home where you, where there's an opportunity to sort of um, practice talking, practice working out ideas and questions um, feels like a really um, supportive environment that would be helpful right now. Thank you. Well, great. I mean, it's going to be, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking about Tuesday and what that night's going to feel like. And I think having a plan for how to help your kids through it is probably a, a good idea. And yourself, uh, whoever, however, wherever, whatever side you're on or however you're feeling, I think a plan would be good. So as we close here, I'm just curious, um, let's just give you a magic wand. You get a, you're, you're in charge now and you get a redesigned school. Um, what would you do uh, to, so that school better served its role in our democracy? If you could just redesign school with a wave your hand. I love this question so much. Well, <laughs> you get to be in charge. Asking. No problem. I want to hear it. <laughs> well, you know, I think, especially in the world of civic education and, you know, educating for democracy, we're perhaps too inclined to think about curriculum and we don't always think enough about culture. But schools for many students are its one of the first communities that they belong to that has its own implied social contract, its own set of rights and responsibilities. Um, they watch the exercise of authority. <laughs> um, they see dynamics of inclusion and exclusion and voice and agency um, in this sort of hidden way. And to the extent that a school can become more conscious of the power of that context to educate kids for democracy, I think there's just an incredible um, opportunity for learning there. Um, so I would like to redesign schools so that teachers and school leaders would have the, um, I suppose, the power to more um, effectively use 
what one, what uh, Ron Richard calls the eight forces of culture in schools in the service of democracy. So when we think about, you know, some of those forces are modeling language, um, routines, expectations, the use of time, thinking about if we put um, democratic learning first, how would we use time in schools? What would we give time to? Um, what changes would we make to the environment? How, how would students be able to come together, for example? Um, how would they make decisions about using the scarce resources at school? Um, for rituals and routines, you know, what gets recognized and celebrated in schools? Um, and how could we create a culture of deliberation where um, students really had authentic voice and an opportunity to participate? And so, by the way, um, would families, you know, for schools, you asked about redesigning schools so that it better serves its role in our democracy. And I think, too, designing schools that would provide more equitable education for all students. I mean, that is the beyond, you know, any beautiful tweaks at the level of school climate and, and culture. I think um, creating schools that are more attentive to who historically has not been well served um, and more attentive to um, building the civic agency and capacity of all students, that would have a really profound effect on our democracy as a whole. Well, I would, I would think, I hope all listeners would want to give you the magic wand to, <laughs> to do it. And it's, it, it's, it is heartening. That's a great word, Garrett, to, to know that there are educators and there are organizations like Facing History and ourselves that are out there trying to do this work. So um, really grateful that you were able to come on the show. Uh, and uh, as we close here, I would just want to thank Garrett and Laura for taking the time. Um, I hope we all have a safe uh, election day or week or month or whatever it's going to be. Um, and our democracy comes out the other side of it. Um, as always, uh, thanks to Nick Fletcher, who was our editor. Uh, here's my weekly or bi-weekly plea. If you like our podcast, please uh, review it on iTunes or wherever you listen. Uh, you can uh, review it there. You can also uh, go to redesigningschool.org and sign up for our newsletter. You can follow us on social media and all the rest so that we're all in this large conversation. So Thank you guys for joining us. Um, and until next time, uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. <laughs>